Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Cool enough? <laughs> In a minute, I'm going to ask if we could to do a hand clap offering for our usher team. Just, I just want to recognize Bill Haney, who was here yesterday working to figure out some of the cooling equipment that's here, and then all that the ushers are doing today to make sure that we're cool with fans and water and, and extra fans and all of that. So can we just give a round of applause? Thank you, Bill. Thank you, team. I also want to just extend my welcome if you're visiting here today. We are very glad that you've chosen to be with us today. We realize it's a hot morning and uh, you could be anywhere, but we're glad that you've chosen to be here with us today. Uh, If I could ask you to turn to chapter 2 in Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2 beginning in verse 4. We are continuing our sermon series in Genesis today. We're in the middle of three messages on this same text in Genesis chapter 2 about the Garden of Eden. Last week, Alex preached on a place for worship. And in two weeks, Pastor Rick is going to be preaching on a place for the word. And today, I'm going to be preaching on a place for work. I'm going to start reading in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the holy and authoritative word of God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, 
because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a sweet time of worship already today. And Lord, we continue to worship you. We thank you for bringing us here today to learn of you from your word. Would you please guide the preaching of your word today for your glory and for the good of your people. We ask this in the name of Jesus. So far in our series, we have traced our way through the creation account, the narrative of Genesis 1, looking at all the days of creation. Just recently, you may remember Pastor Joel Shorey preached on the rhythm of creation and rest, teaching us about the Sabbath being a creational mandate to rest. So today, as we focus on work, it's important to remember that the God who ordains work also ordains rest. Last week, Alex set the context for our verses today. He spoke of chapter 1 as showcasing our God as the one who transcends time and space. While in chapter 2, we see God zooms in and showcases, God is showcased there as the one who is near, who is entering into time and space. So here in the garden, we are at a time before sin and death entered the world. And we continue in the coming weeks in our series on Genesis, we'll be looking at the origins of sin and the fall of man that led to the curse that all the world is under. But today, as we look at Genesis chapter 2, we look before the groaning of all creation that Paul speaks of in Romans, before sin entered the world, before the curse. We will be looking at the origins of work here in the garden. And the title of my sermon is The Creation of Eden, A Place for Work. And if you have an outline, you'll be able to follow along. I'll try to call out as I go in the message where the outline is highlighting things. Several years ago, you may remember there was a viral phenomenon on the Internet, what I think is now called the dress. There was a photograph that had been taken of a dress, and as this was passed around on social media, there seemed to be two camps of people. Those that would look at the dress and think its color was black and blue. And the other camp would look at the exact same photo, and they would say, that dress is white and gold. Everybody looking at this photograph would have one or the other perspective. You would attest that it was one set of colors, or you would attest that it other. It seemed to completely divide everyone that looked at the photo. And I want to make the case that as Christians, this is the kind of situation that we face all the time that we see the world drastically different than other people see it. We have been radically changed by God's power and mercy. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been given a hope that defies worldly knowledge. This is so transformative that our very nature has been changed, that no longer are we natural people to whom the things of God are folly, but we've been rocketed into God's family. We've been made new as redeemed people indwelled by the Spirit of God. For the Christian, our worldview is radically different from the world. And these differences are far more significant than the color of a dress. These are issues of life and death, heaven and hell. And when we talk about work, that's actually the case as well. So in this case, when we think about the concept of work, 
our understanding of you as Christians of what it means to work and what work means is and should be drastically different than the world's view of the same subject. I'm not going to spend time today doing a comparison of what the world thinks versus what we think because I think there's just one simple fundamental difference. The Christian worldview differs fundamentally with all others in that we know God and that he is central to, to all things. And that's in your outline. We know God and he is central to all things. As Christians, our truth comes from the word of God. So we look to the word of God today to affirm what we know is true. We'll be looking at two key themes from the text today. This is in the outline. It is God who calls us to work and God provides for our work. It is God who calls us to work and God himself provides for our work. So when you hear the word work, what do you think of? The word work may conjure up very negative connotations. Have you ever heard someone say they're allergic to work? Maybe, you, maybe you've said it yourself. Or we might refer to it as the, the rat race, the daily grind, a vicious cycle. How about the word chore? When you hear the word chore, that's a form of work. Uh, the word chore has been described as an especially difficult and unpleasant routine task. So work may not be necessarily a popular thing to be thinking about. In his book, God at Work, David A. Miller offers a useful definition for the word work and one that I think will suit our topic today. He says that work is a sustained exercise of strength and skill that overcomes obstacles to produce or accomplish something. Work is a sustained exercise of strength and skill that overcomes obstacles to produce or accomplish something. This definition is helpful in part because it's not limited to one's profession. When we think of the word work, we might often think, well, that's my job, my job, what I do for a living, that's my work. And that certainly is part of the definition of work. Considering that, that someone's profession the amount of time that someone will spend working in their lifetime could be as much as 80,000 hours. Our jobs are a really important part of what we think about when we think of the word work. But it's not limited to our profession. Work could be changing a diaper, tending the children, painting your living room, mowing your lawn, tutoring students, all forms of labor. The employed get paid for what they do, but there's a lot of labor that is done there, there's no compensation. But whether you're paid or unpaid, those of us that are working, which I would venture to guess is just about everybody in here, we will spend the vast majority of our waking hours involved in work. That's a significant amount of time, and so it's, it's really important that we understand the biblical concept of work. As people living under a curse in the midst of a fallen world, we do often view work as unpleasant or difficult, something that we have to do. I have to earn. I got to go. And that may very well be the, the case. The fact is that work can be stressful, tiring, full of unrealistic deadlines, strained relationships, the boss that doesn't understand, the difficult customer. Our work lives can be the kind of thing that keeps us up at night or consumes our thoughts, our chests are tight, grinding our teeth. Work can be very difficult. But in what we're looking here today, let us remember that work was given before sin entered the world. So therefore, this is part of God's 
perfect creation. Work is part of God's perfect creation. In your outline, work is of creation, not a result of the fall. Work is ordained in creation, not a result of the fall. The unstained work of the Garden of Eden was designed to be a pleasant and rewarding occupation. We can imagine Adam and Eve would have loved caring for the garden and would have found it fulfilling and purposeful. And here is the point of our first theme, that it is God who calls us to work. We see this in the text that we read today. God commissions us, male and female. He commissions us to work. We see this even in chapter 1, verse 28. God says to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the creatures. In our text today, chapter 15, uh, verse 15 in chapter 2, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And then later, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, the Lord brings the creatures before the man to see what he would call them. God gives Adam the task of naming all creatures, and the work then given to Adam and Eve is to have dominion over the living creatures of the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. God has Adam and Eve in the garden to partner in this labor to work and keep the garden. John Calvin speaks of the goodness of this commission, the work in the Garden of Eden, in the following way. He says, This labor truly was pleasant and full of delight, entirely free from all trouble and weariness. Can you imagine a work like that? Pleasant and full of delight, free from trouble and weariness? So let's look a little more closely at the assignment to work and keep the garden that was given to them. A deeper study of the underlying Hebrew points to a sense of serving and protecting, meaning that to work and keep the garden is to serve and protect it. This is what God has called Adam to do. So an aspect of going to work as believers means for us that we serve and protect a gardener serves and protects the garden. Fathers and mothers serve and protect their children. Doctors serve and protect patients. Lawyers serve and protect the interests of their clients. On your job, you serve and protect the assets of your employer. Public servants are required to serve and protect citizens. The charge to Adam was to serve and protect the garden sanctuary, to maintain the holiness and purity of the place of worship against anything impure or unholy that might enter in or defile God's house. So here's a, here's a question to consider. If you came into a large amount of money suddenly, would you keep working? Would you stop working? Would you turn to a life of pleasure, eating, drinking, and sleeping? You may have heard this, that lottery winners don't necessarily have a good track record of finding joy. The author of Life Lessons from the Lottery says the following, that so many lottery winners wind up unhappy and wind up broke. There's a similar risk to one who retires from the workplace. According to one psychology association, they identify that retirees may develop anxiety, depression, and debilitating feelings of loss. And one doesn't necessarily need to win the lottery or retire from work 
to disengage. There's a measurement that HR groups will use. It's called employee engagement. This is a measurement of how plugged in an employee is to doing their job. As workers, every one of us has a certain level of passion and commitment towards our responsibilities, and employee engagement is a means of attempting to measure that. Proverbs 10.4 says that a slack hand causes poverty. This is in your outline. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. It makes sense that companies want to understand employee engagement and improve this measurement because it means that the more engaged everyone is, the more productive and profitable the business will be. So as Christians, we are called to the highest levels of employee engagement, to work with all our hearts. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, the word speaks of us serving with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So we're to work from our heart. We're to be engaged in the workplace from the heart. It should not surprise you that those who transition into either a life of increased luxury or inactivity suffer and struggle because we have been created to work. We have been called to work. We are not meant to be inactive or lazy. And maybe you are retired or maybe you're thinking about retiring. Maybe you will come into an unexpected inheritance. Or maybe you're about to become an empty nester. As believers, we should see these as opportunities to keep running well. And our desire should be to finish well. So a windfall of money or time that opens up new and wonderful ways to work and serve, that's how we should be thinking about it. If we have new resources, that this is a new way the Lord may be opening up for us to continue to serve, to volunteer our time, to serve in ministry, to mentor others to seek God's leading for a second chapter. Now, as I finish this first theme, that it is God who calls us to work, let's be reminded of how the New Testament speaks of work, that our lives and our labors are a form of worship, that we work because God calls us to work, and we work because it is God for whom we work. This is why that employee engagement measure for a Christian should be high. For whatever we are doing, whether that's paid or unpaid labor, in the home, on the job, or at the church, we work for the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is in your outline, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. So now let's look at the second theme, that God provides for our work. And we're going to look at five key ways that God accomplished this from the text. First, by creating us. Second, by giving us life. Third, by creating human society. Fourth, by placing us where we need to be. And fifth, by giving us the materials we need. So first, God provides for our work by creating us. In our text today, verse 5 describes a time in creation. It says, there was no man to work the ground. This is describing the time when man did not yet exist. There was no man. There was no woman. God's plan was unfolding. 
And there was anticipation of our creation. There was no man to work the ground. There was about to be a man to work the ground. If we think about this, there's a high degree of humility involved in recognizing that our being, our shape, our free features were crafted by God, that we are not our own. Our ability to work is completely and utterly dependent on how God has made us. We have arms to lift and control things, fingers for delicate tasks, legs for strength and transport, our five senses. So the next time you're working or performing a task, see the glory of God in how he has made you. Psalm 139 verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God the potter has made us a pot from clay. A commentator has spoken of this, that the idea of man rebelling against God is about as absurd as the pot rebelling against the potter. It truly is absurd. So first, God provides for us by creating us. Second, God provides for our work by giving us life. There in verse 7, there is no breath in Adam until God gave it to him. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God gives man life. And the Apostle Paul spoke of this when he spoke to the men of Athens. He said of God, He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God breathed his life first into Adam. John Calvin speaks of this that we do not live by our own power, but by the kindness of God alone. Life is not an intrinsic good. It's not just something that happens. Life proceeds from God. So God provides for our work by giving us life. Third, God provides for our work by creating human society. Man was not meant to be alone. In the first negative of all of creation, God says that it is not good for man to be alone. We look at verse 23. Adam, when God, the father of the bride, brings Eve to him. Adam is so full of joy at that point, he turns into a poet, beaming the first poetic couplet of the Bible. God didn't stop there. All of humanity would proceed from their union. That's why we refer to Adam and Eve as our first parents. So think of the ways that people work together to produce and care for all the things around us. When we think of all of human society, think of those rich gifts and talents and divisions of tasks, organizations and businesses, corporations and governments, the team that you work on, the vendor who is supporting you, the people who are developing life-saving medicines that you will benefit from perhaps one day, the farmers who fill our fridge, and the pilot that gets us where we need to go, the creators of the technology we use. And as we contribute to human society, we reap the benefit of everyone else's contribution. All of this is under the mighty sovereign hand of God. So God provides for our work by creating human society. Fourth, God provides for us by placing us where we need to be. God, in our text, God placed Adam where he wanted him, in a specific place for a specific purpose. God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it with Eve to have dominion over the land and the creatures and to be fruitful and multiply. And like Adam and Eve, we need God to direct our steps. This reminds us of Jonah. Jonah, who God wanted to send to a specific place for a specific purpose, to preach repentance 
to the heathen nation of Nineveh. But Jonah didn't want anything to do with God's plan. He, he claimed, and he was right, that God could do the work just fine without him. But just as God placed Adam in the garden for a specific purpose, God would place Jonah right where he wanted him, even sending him from the mouth of a fish in the direction that God intended. And so maybe this opens a thought. Are you where God intends you to be? Do you have a sense of peace and purpose in the work that you're doing? Or is it possible that, like Jonah, God is calling you to something different? And this is why we need to pray over our work lives. Do you pray regularly for this area of your life, this big chunk of time that we face every day? Are you asking for prayers from others? Do you pray for your boss, your employees, your coworkers, that difficult customer, your ministry partners? Let God lead you in this way. Bring these issues to the throne of God. Another way that we can seek wisdom and direction is in seeking the guidance from godly people. Proverbs 11:14 that the counsel of others makes victory sure. The text says, "Where there is no guidance, a people falls." But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Do you have a mentor in your work life? Is there someone that you go to to ask the tough questions, to get guidance on the next step in your career? Or maybe you are already serving as a mentor for others. Asking for input and guidance is rooted in the biblical call to humility. Humility understands that we have so much more to learn, and we need to benefit from the wisdom and experience of others. Christians should be the first in line telling others, I need help. For that is exactly what the gospel is, a cry for help. A mentor relationship can be very simple. Maybe you meet every couple of months, lunch maybe, a coffee. Spend time beforehand to list out your key questions. Pray for your time and then meet to discuss. Sometimes mentoring can be mutually beneficial. Like maybe you have a friend in the same field working for a different company. Just share some war stories about how things are going at work and the challenges you're facing. Or you may benefit by having someone who's a little bit further down the road in your career. Maybe they work directly in your profession or they do something similar that they're able to help guide you. So consider having a mentor. I, I personally have benefited significantly throughout my career from having mentors from my 20s on. Another way to seek guidance from others and from the Word is through a Bible and book study that we do here at Risen Hope called Workforce Believers. Workforce believers, I'm going to speak about that in just a moment. So that's number four, that God provides for us by placing us where we need to be. Now we'll look fifth and finally here at God provides for us by giving the materials that we need. Without looking at the text, do you know who first planted the garden? Who first planted the Garden of Eden? We know Adam and Eve were placed there to do the work, but it was God himself who jump-started the garden as a habitat for man and all the creatures. That's in verse 8. God himself first planted the garden that Adam and Eve were called to tend to. And anywhere we're looking in this creational account, I have to say it's stunning to see how God is providing material support over and over again to the labor of man. Look at the fact that we have sustaining nourishment. We saw this in chapter 1, how God gave the plants and fruit for food. In the beginning, we were all vegetarians. It's not until after the flood receded 
that God added meat and poultry and seafood to our diet. God provides the irrigation. In verse 10, the river in Eden waters the garden. God makes the rain to fall upon the earth. There's a mist rising up from the ground, creating clouds that become laden with moisture until they deliver rain and repeat the cycle. The Lord made the sun, which gives sight to the day, growth for the vegetation, and warmth and comfort and energy. And he gave us beasts of burden to be harnessed to help yield the crops of the garden. It's interesting to note that to this day, we sell cars, a measurement that we use to evaluate a car is how much horsepower it has. Can you picture 350 horses in front of your vehicle pulling you home today? So not only all these things, but God has done more than we could even imagine or think to ask. That he's provided functionality in his provision, but he's also provided beauty and goodness. Verse 9 speaks of things being pleasant and tasty. I read earlier in the text of the gold that is there and the precious stones, the bdellium and the onyx. Or here's a thought. Today, we're working with everything that God has put into creation. All the things that have been locked up, bound up in creation. Like, think about the following, that everything necessary to build our homes is coming from creation. The things that are used to create interplanetary rockets, it's coming from creation. Or to produce a hula hoop, or to craft a pipe organ. The materials for all this and everything is from creation just sitting there waiting to be tapped. A couple of interesting scientific facts that I came across in my research. Maybe you already know this. Plastic. Plastic comes from petroleum and natural gas. But there was a time that we didn't have plastic, but petroleum and natural gas has been there. Or silicon chips that power our computers. These are made from sand. And and I I learned that sand is actually the second most abundant element on earth after oxygen. And that's what's being used to be the brain of our computer systems today. These are things that have been locked into creation for us. Proverbs 25.2 says the following, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. So we as kings, God's royal image bearers, We have the amazing job of searching and harnessing the mysteries of creation. Think about the things that have been discovered. Electricity, semiconductors, wireless communication, medical innovations, all technology that we enjoy is rooted in the creation of God. Consider also that God has made each of us with different gifts and passions, and that's everyone, both Christians and non-Christians. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of the common grace made available to all people, believers and non-believers, that God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. As Christians, we need to be aware that God sovereignly distributes gifts and graces as he sees fit. Not everyone is going to have five talents. Some might have two or one. And we need to be faithful The Christian worldview has no place for socialism, which is a forced equality of outcome, because God does not make everyone the same. Some will be more gifted, more prosperous, more successful, whether believers or not. And that inequality does not make God unjust. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller says the following, talking about this. 
Christians ought to be the ones who appreciate the work of non-Christians the most. We know we are saved by grace alone, and therefore, therefore we are not better fathers or mothers, better artists and business persons than those who do not believe as we do. Our gospel-trained eyes, Tim continues here, our gospel-trained eyes can see the world ablaze with the glory of God's work through the people he has created and called in everything from the simplest actions such as milking a cow to the most brilliant artistic or historic achievement. And this leads to a thought for all of us that we, we have the freedom to seek the work that suits our gifts and passions. We have that freedom. God's given it to us that we can seek the work that best suits our gifts and passions. Now, in, in thinking about Adam and Eve here in the garden, I want to point out a few things. They had everything that they needed. God had formed them. God had given them life. God had given them each other to partner in the labor and to enjoy one another. God had placed them there in the paradise of the garden and had given them all the creatures and the earth to use and rule. And he'd given them the good mandate of work. The garden was a very pleasant and perfect picture. So God provides for us by giving us the materials that we need. But the garden isn't the end of the story. This picture of paradise would come crashing down through one man, Adam, sin and death would enter the world and Adam and Eve would be cast out from the paradise of the garden all of humanity would find itself under the curse and in need of redemption but God but God in his loving kindness provided for this as well through his son Jesus Christ now here's a problem that relates to work that people can confuse when they think about the gospel in our work life, in our school life, in our sports life, how hard we work often translates into the rewards that we receive. So doesn't everyone know that if you work hard in this world, you can take home more money? If you hustle, you can get that raise, you can get that promotion. Or how about students who work and study hard? Don't they get good grades and maybe scholarships? What about athletes and musicians who work hard and practice? They might become superstars. Don't we get out what we put in? It seems that the whole world operates from this perspective. But the gospel, the gospel is entirely different. I'm going to read a few phrases and in your head, see if you can finish the sentence all the way out, okay? There's no such thing as a free lunch. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. I make money the old-fashioned way. I earn it. There's no gain without pain. And God helps those who helps themselves. Everything about the world around us teaches us that you get what you earn in life. You get what you pay for. We value work, sweat, effort, performance. This is what we call work ethic, right? But the problem with this is it causes difficulty in our relationship with God because God does not relate to us on performance to merit salvation. We can do nothing to earn our salvation. We have done nothing to earn it, and we do nothing to retain it as well. God does not relate to us based on our effort or the amount of work we do or even how much we try. 
The Bible says that God relates to us, and every blessing we have in our lives comes by grace as a free gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't work for it. It's just a free gift of God. And the Bible says that everything in our life is a gift of grace. But here's the thing. You wouldn't have the effort to work. You wouldn't have the brains to work. You wouldn't have the energy to work if God didn't give it to you. You might think, well, wait a minute. The things I have, I work for it. I went there. I worked. I got money. I went and I bought things. I earned it. I put sweat equity in. But the fact is, every good and perfect gift we have is from the hand of God, that he would enable us, equip us, to create us, to give us life, to do the work that we've done, to have the earnings that we have. God gave us that blessing. Every breath we take is a gift from God. And here's a thought. God doesn't even owe us our next breath. And when we take that breath, it is a gift of God. Can we worship while we breathe? As we breathe in, we breathe out, Lord, thank you for giving us the breath of life. So the Bible's very clear about this, that God saves us by grace. God blesses us by grace. God teaches us by grace. God uses us by grace. God takes us to heaven by grace. Everything in our life that's good is a gift from God. We hear this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Paul says something to the effect of, whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out such kindness and grace on me. And in John chapter 1, verse 16, we hear, for from him, sorry, for from his fullness, we have all received, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Do you know that Jesus came into the world in order to save sinners? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world in order to save sinners. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus was the greatest worker, doing the greatest work, being the greatest example. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest work of all history is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's in your outline. The greatest work of all history is what Jesus accomplished through the cross. Scripture tells us that Jesus worked with his hands as a carpenter. Before his ministry, Jesus worked as a, as a carpenter. And we've seen since the dawn of time that our God is a God who works. We see this in the creational account. But Jesus came into the world for a much greater work than carpentry. He came to do the will of the Father, the work that the Father had sent him to do, the work of redemption, that through his pain and suffering on the cross, he paid the most terrible price for the salvation of his people. He made it possible for us to put our faith in him. This is a free gift from the grace of God that we could be made right because of his righteousness through his death and resurrection. These troubles that we may have in our work life, these difficulties, these are but fleeting things. They vanish like a mist, as we sang earlier. We are heading home to a place with no more suffering, no more struggle, where the work we are called to do will be as it was first intended in the garden, pleasant and full of delight, entirely free from all trouble and weariness. Church, let us look forward to that day when Christ will return. If you're here today and you would not consider yourself a Christian, 
We're very glad that you are here. Maybe you've heard of Jesus, but you don't know who he is or who he is to you. I'll tell you right now that Jesus died for your sins and he's calling you right now to bring you to God. Through his death, he took the punishment that you deserve for your sins, that all of us deserve for our sins. God calls us to repent and to turn to him for salvation. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you would not consider yourself a Christian, do you know that you can claim him today as Lord and Savior? I believe that may be why you're here today. So if that is you, please talk to someone after the service. And if you're unable to do that before the family meeting starts, reach out to the church office. We would love to talk to you more about this. So as I draw to a close, let's reflect on what we've covered here today. It is God who calls us to work. And he is the one for whom we work. God himself provides for our work. And the greatest work of all history is what Christ accomplished on the cross. So let me come back to that study that I mentioned earlier. One of the ways that we have sought as a church to grow in our understanding of being believers in the workplace is through a Bible and book study that we call Workforce Believers. In this study, we read a work-related book over a period of several weeks. We meet weekly as a group for biblical discussion and to go through the material. As we've done this over the years and years past, these studies have been a great source of mutual encouragement, a great opportunity for prayer for one another to receive prayer and to give prayer, and also a means of mentoring. Hey, this challenge I'm having, anybody have any ideas? How can I sort through this struggle? So we're considering the timing for our next Workforce Believer study, and we would love to hear from you if you're interested. Uh, In your bulletin today, you'll see there's a QR code for an interest form that we put up online. It's a very brief survey just to help us know how many folks might be interested, what days of the week might work best for you, what time of day, morning, noon. A lot of times we've done this before work start. There might also be an option to do it during the lunch hour. And, uh, and, and different than we've done before, we're considering in person, but might we also want to do it on Zoom. So, so you guys are able to answer those questions. If you're interested in participating, please fill out that form, and then I will do follow-up with you as we look to establish that. And if you're not um, seeing the code or you're having trouble with the form, you can also just let any of the pastors know. So that's workforce believers. Let me c- close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your tender mercy, Lord, that you sent your son to die on a Roman cross to wash away our sins, Lord, that we could be made right with you, that we could be restored one day and look forward to that perfect garden, that place that you've gone before to prepare for us, that we will be with you to worship you and to love you forever. Lord, we thank you for building us, forming us, breathing life into us. We thank you for the the fellowship that we have with our fellow workers. We thank you for placing us where you have, Lord. Would you direct us if we need to change anything? And Lord, thank you for all the materials that you provide. Lord, I ask your special blessing on the preaching of this word, and I ask your blessing on this congregation as we continue our day today with the family meeting and the rest of our endeavors throughout the day, Lord. We pray all this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
Church, before I leave you with a benediction, just a quick reminder what Rob spoke of earlier. In a few minutes, we're going to be starting the family meeting. This meeting is for members of Risen Hope only. Member children will be staying in Promise Kingdom, so parents, you can stay here until we finish the meeting. And if you're visiting or you're not a member, we, just, we thank you for coming today. We ask if you would just quietly leave out these, either this door or out that door, please. You're dismissed, and you can pick up your children from Promise Kingdom. Church members, please stay put, and we'll start shortly. And let me leave you with this benediction from Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Thank you.